Hello there, great to see you again. I hope you've made it to the end of the week in one piece and that you're about to ease into a relaxing weekend. This is MLEX's podcast, everything you need to know from the world of regulatory affairs with the assistance of our reporters deeply embedded in the centres of regulatory power all around the world. I'm James Paniki, a senior editor here at NLEX. Now, you don't need to be in the market for Taylor Swift tickets to know that antitrust regulators in the US have come in for some criticism of late. Nonetheless, there's some evidence to suggest that the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice are asserting themselves in relatively new ways. For example, the DOJ is undertaking a review of company boards. Why is that, I hear you ask? Well, the antitrust officials are digging deep into the statute books to prevent the same people from sitting on boards of competing companies. The assumption, of course, is that boardroom overlaps can dampen competition and lead to potentially illegal exchanges of information. Our San Francisco-based senior correspondent Mike Acton is exactly the kind of person you'd want to write a piece of analysis on this issue – And luckily for us, he has done just that. And he joins us now from our offices in the city by the bay. Uh, Mike, firstly, what is Section 8 of the Clayton Act and what do we need to know about how it works? So the Clayton Act is one of the major federal antitrust laws. Uh, It was passed in 1914. And Section 8 um, basically applies to uh, the question of people sitting on the boards of competing companies. It prohibits individuals from sitting on the boards of competitors, uh, subject to certain sales thresholds, and there are some exceptions for uh, sectors like banking. So it's sort of a preemptive law designed to stop collusion in advance so that you can't sit on the board of competitors, so you remove the incentive to do something potentially illegal. Okay, but a law is only good if it's enforced. So what's the significance of the DOJ's recent moves to actually enforce Section 8 of the Clayton Act? So it was kind of unprecedented. What was unprecedented about it was that uh, the DOJ released um, this this press release that said that um, seven individuals across five different companies, across a range of different sectors, there didn't seem to be any particular rhyme or reason to the sectors that they'd chosen, um, had been ousted. Uh, All that had happened is they'd been sent a letter from the DOJ saying uh, you could be in violation of Section 8 of the Clayton Act. Um, What's unusual about that is it's not really been enforced outside of the context of mergers for decades. And so it sort of goes to um, the DOJ antitrust chief, uh, Jonathan Cantor, has been very keen to revive statutes that are there in the written letter of the law, but maybe have just not really been enforced. So it's not completely unprecedented. There were some resignations from the board of uh, Live Nation last year, which sort of maybe gave a hint that that things were moving in this direction. And last year as well, the Federal Trade Commission, which is obviously the other major federal um, antitrust enforcer, uh, highlighted uh, the issue of interlocking directors as a sort of priority area. Now, who needs to be concerned by this? Which industries, which sectors might be the most exposed to this new enforcement drive? Well, the first one, I guess, is, is tech. Um, because it's a dynamic sector and uh, with some companies launching sort of new lines of business constantly and sort of reinventing themselves, you can suddenly find yourself a competitor with another company pretty much overnight. Uh, So this has happened in the past. So in 2016, um, Alphabet's uh, chief legal officer voluntarily resigned from Uber's board because the two companies suddenly started competing in self-driving vehicles. So he obviously preemptively thought, well, this could be a violation. Another area is medical companies, 
there was a Stanford University uh, study earlier this year that found that um, it's a study of around 2,000 life sciences companies, and it found that more than half of those companies with more than $5 million uh, in revenue uh, had interlocked directorates. That's not to say that they're in violation because they may not be direct competitors, but perhaps that speaks to the fact that if you're on the board of a pharmaceutical or a medical company, bio, uh, biopharma company, you probably need a certain level of expertise, uh, not just you know business expertise, but scientific expertise. And I guess also new companies, because uh, last year there was a record uh, spree of IPO activity. When companies go public, it obviously shakes up their boards. If you're a newer, younger company and you've suddenly got a bunch of new board members and maybe some of those are from private equity uh, or big investment firms, you might not have had the sort of time to develop that compliance program that uh, more established companies would have had. Now, you mentioned private equity in passing just now. Well, tell me something about the role of uh, private equity in all of this and how it might factor into the story. Yeah, so the, the context here is that Cantor, uh, uh, the DOJ antitrust chief, um, he's very concerned about the influence of investment firms over sort of whole sectors of the economy. And uh, earlier this year, he gave an interview in which he said he was concerned about private equity firms rolling up sort of whole sectors of the economy. And the interpretation the DOJ takes of Section 8 is that it doesn't just apply to individuals, it applies to companies as well. So that is to say, if, if I'm a partner at a private equity firm and I have a colleague who's also a partner who's sitting on the board of a, a competing company, then we are still in violation of Section 8. That's tended to be the interpretation of it. So it doesn't just apply to an individual. It applies to you know an institutional investor, whatever. So what was interesting about these the, the spree of um, resignations in October was that there was one particular quite high-profile private equity firm called Toma Bravo in which three partners resigned from the board of one software company. And then a week or so later, there are two more partners uh, resigned from the board of another company, not because of uh, a DOJ warning letter. They said it was purely because they were looking <laughs> looking to comply. So Toma Bravo has sort of like been the guinea pig in this whole case. Um, but it raises this question about how pervasive this issue may be, uh, where you have investors that are sitting on the boards of uh, competing companies. I guess it's a, it's, it's, it's a kind of fairly easy avenue for the DOJ to take into that question about the influence of that sector. Now, given that the US tends to be quite a litigious society, this might be a superfluous question, but is there much likelihood that the companies will want to challenge this in court? Yes, it's a good question. It's hard to see how a board seat on a company could be that valuable that it's worth you know, potentially years of litigation with the DOJ over a rule that's pretty clear. I mean, there's not there's not much wiggle room in it. You could potentially argue that you weren't competitors based on the thresholds, but it's kind of hard to imagine a, a company wanting to go to those lengths um, to fight over a board seat. If you're a private equity firm and you have a portfolio of companies um, and you may see a potential Section 8 violation, I mean, probably the more rational strategy would be to just merge them. (laughs) And then you don't have competing boards, there's just one board. Where it could spark litigation is from the other direction. I think that's partly what the DOJ's thinking is here, is that it's sort of putting Section 8 back on the map and saying, this is a warning sign about potential collusion across the economy. And so if you're a private litigant and you're bringing a, a classic sort of cartel case or whatever, you might then add a sort of Section 8 element to it and say, look, here's the problem. They're, they're in violation of Section 8, and here's how this whole thing sort of played out. So you could possibly see that popping up in uh, lawsuits uh, uh, in the future. I mean, 
we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, Cancer's been uh, at a conference in San Francisco uh, a few weeks ago. Um, he said that it's a, that this issue of interlocking directorates is, is a pervasive problem um, across a wide range of industries. So far, we've seen 10 or so individuals uh, leave the boards of companies. I think it's a fair bet that a lot of these companies are now doing their own internal checks to see that they're in compliance. And I would not be surprised um, if we see more to come. Mike, I can't wait for you to be covering your very first Section 8 lawsuit uh, if and when it happens. It'll be great fun uh, to watch. And it was great talking as always. Let's speak again very soon. Thanks, James. Mike Acton is an MLEX senior correspondent. His analysis of how the DOJ has been targeting overlapping board members is ready for you to read and enjoy at our website. Our URL is as follows mlexmarketinsight.com that's m-l-e-x marketinsight.com you'll see a tab there that's called news hub and that is the one that you need to click on with confidence because it will unlock the very best of mlex's reporting and analysis there's also an archive of podcasts if that's how you like to get your news you'll also notice a special report section And that's where you can go to download our Tokyo team's recent special report on Kazuyuki Furuya, the chairman of the Japan Fair Trade Commission. There's so much going on in Japan on the antitrust front at the moment, and the special report will help you make sense of it all, and it is certainly well worth a read. Subscribers, of course, have access to an entire portfolio of writing covering Furuya's JFTC chairmanship. The MLEX podcast is presented and produced by me, James Paniki. You can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. The podcast is uploaded with diligence and panache by our London-based marketing team and our executive producer is Richard Thompson. From all of us here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now. Bye for now.